Well, good morning, everyone. And it's good to see you in our Adventist history class again. And the title for our class today, it's maybe a little bit more um, up front, perhaps, but it's the Desmond Ford Apostasy. And we are going to go through that today. So let's go ahead and bow our heads for a word of prayer and we'll get started. Father in heaven, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity to study. We pray that your spirit would be with us now as we study more about our history. And we pray that this would be an opportunity to learn more about what truth is and how to stay on the straight and narrow path that you've laid out for us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The first thing that I will say is I'm not here to um, pick a fight in particular with Desmond Ford as a person. Um, From everything I hear about him, he's a very nice person. So I don't have anything against him as a person per se. What we're going to be evaluating are his teachings. So that's, I just want to put that out there. Um, And... The other thing that I will point out is that I I wanted to clarify a couple of things I said in the the class last week when we covered the history on questions on doctrine. There's a couple of things that were pointed out to me afterwards that I didn't say as clearly or it was an error. Number one, I said Arthur White was the great-grandson of Ellen White. He's actually the grandson of Ellen White. So for those of you who are here or listening on the recording, Arthur White, who was alive during the time QOD was being published. He was the grandson, not the great-grandson of Ellen White. And also, I made a statement that Froome went to Social Security to get benefits because he lost his benefits from the church. That's, that was incorrect. It was Andreasen who, who did that. I, and I obviously meant to say Andreasen. And there were so many names we were throwing around last week, I made the incorrect statement on that. So just wanted to clarify that. Now, <clears throat> some people have wondered what the fruits of questions on doctrine have been. And I've, I've actually had dialogue with some historians of the Adventist church that I went to college with and so forth, and they did not see a connection directly between questions on doctrine and Desmond Ford. And what we're going to do today is show some of that connection. If you remember what we looked at last week, Questions on doctrine undermined the traditional understanding of the remnant of Babylon, the nature of Christ, and the atonement. With the remnant said, hey, God has this remnant in every church, which then begs the question, why do we have a message to call people out? With Babylon, they were saying that those who are God's people are not really Babylon, even if they're in the Babylonian churches, which then again begs the question, why call people out of Babylon? Why would God tell us his people to come out of her if you're in her and you're not part of Babylon? So that didn't make sense. And then with the nature of Christ, Froome took a poll of Adventist leaders. Most of them believed Christ had a fallen nature. Then he says, no, we as the leadership of the church believe he had a sinless nature. And then he said, those who believe he had a fallen nature constitute the lunatic fringe of our church. So that's kind of a problem. And actually in George Knight's um, annotated edition, 
he said several different ways, well, Froome was less than transparent, he wasn't completely forthright, so forth and so forth, but he could never bring himself quite to say that Froome lied about the Adventist position on the nature of Christ. So, and then the atonement, the emphasis on the atonement was shifted to the cross. And so, the question then is, well, what is the theological effect on Seventh-day Adventism when you change those teachings around to the way questions on doctrine was presented? And I might add that 150,000 copies of QOD were printed and put into the hands of Adventist pastors and laypersons. And the effect that it had theologically on the church is quite profound. Remember I said when Froome took a poll of Adventist leadership at that time, most of them believed, in fact nearly all of them believed Christ had a fallen nature. Now if you were to do the same, most of them would probably say he had a sinless nature as QOD says. So that was sort of the, the shifting point in the history of Adventist theology. Now, <clears throat> truth is still truth no matter what a book says. And there were some Adventist leaders that God raised up during this time, <clears throat> namely um, Herbert Douglas, Kenneth Wood, Robert Pearson. And Robert Pearson was the president of the General Conference, so that's as high as you can go in the church. Of course, Christ is our leader, but when it comes to the leaders of our church, General Conference President is the highest leader. And then Kenneth Wood was editor of the Review. Herbert Douglas was also working at the Review. Thomas Davis also working at the Review. And these men <clears throat> took issue with questions on doctrine. And in 1973 and 74, Robert Pearson and Kenneth Wood um, spearheaded what are known as the 73 and 74 Appeals where they said Christ is waiting for a generation who perfectly reproduces character, and when we have a group of people like that, the coming of Christ will not be long from now. You can read that in the Review and Herald and, and so forth. And they were writing articles in the Review that went directly contrary to what Questions on Doctrine had, had published. So now... <clears throat> You know, the leadership of the church is coming back against what Froome and the people of his time in the late 50s did. Now in the early 70s, the leadership of the church is coming back in a different direction. And something very interesting happened during this time. Now, I believe Robert Pearson was one of our most spiritual leaders of the Seventh-day Adventist Church um, as, with respect to our General Conference presidents. And Robert Pearson... Um, had an interest in the 1888 message, and we've talked about that in our earlier class. The message is given by Jones and Wagner, the, the message of Christ in you, the power of the indwelling Christ to give us victory over all sin in this life. And that, of course, was very different than the righteousness by faith being presented in questions on doctrine. And in questions on doctrine, the emphasis is that we're saved by justification only. And justification is a declaration by God that says we're righteous even though we're still sinning. And Robert Pearson and some of these other leaders were presenting a different view of righteousness by faith. And Robert Pearson wanted to go back to the church studying the 1888 message. And he understood what the message was, and he was going to give it a special emphasis. But he took a look at the theological landscape of the church. And he looked at the church, 
And by then, many of the key theologians in our institutions had accepted the questions on doctrine and understanding of righteousness by faith, which is to say we are saved by justification only, and it's a declarative righteousness that doesn't change anything. And so Robert Pearson realized, humanly speaking, that if the 1888 message, which is an emphasis on victory over sin, the power of the indwelling Christ, was placed prominently before the people, it would split the church. And it's probably true. It's, uh, among the, the theologians, there probably would have been a big fight about, man, who were Jones and Wagner? They weren't trained theologians, and how do they know what righteousness by faith is? We're the scholars, and that sort of thing. And so Robert Pearson decided not to bring that message to the forefront. Now remember, Ellen White said that this message, when received in its fullness, will lighten the earth with its glory. And they... But Robert Pearson realized that if they brought this message to the front, it would, um, it would divide the theologians, so to speak. And so he decided that he didn't want to see the church split. Now, obviously I wish that Elder Pearson had made a different decision, but at the same time, I'm here, again, I'm here to say I think he's one of the most spiritual men who led our church. Um, I wished that there were more leaders like him. I think he probably made a mistake in this particular case, but we all are human beings. But what happened as a result of Desmond Ford not bringing the 1888 message of righteousness by faith to the forefront in the mid-70s? What happened was the devil came in with Desmond Ford and split the church anyway. So which would you rather have had split the church? The true message or a heretical message. And then the other point is, let's remember this about truth. It's not truth that divides. It's error that divides. And let's not be afraid of the effect of truth here. Yeah, Robert Pearson did not bring... Well, Desmond Ford split the church. Okay, well, let me clarify. Um, And thanks for saying that. I don't want to be making mistakes all the time here. Robert Pearson decided not to bring the 1888 message to the forefront because he was afraid it would split the church. And as a result of that decision, just a few years later, Desmond Ford comes in and splits the church with the message that's completely opposite. And so what I'm saying is error is what divides, not truth. Truth is what unites. And, you know... I've, I've heard from people that Robert Pearson to his dying day regretted not doing or bringing that message to the forefront because obviously he saw what happened afterwards and hindsight's 2020. Um, obviously, I believe we'll see Robert Pearson in the kingdom and he truly believed that if they had brought that message to the forefront that the Lord would have come in his lifetime and so he went to his grave with that burden on his shoulders. So again, it's a history lesson for us what are we going to do when we have an opportunity to bring truth to the forefront? Are we going to be ashamed of it? Or are we going to, or afraid of it? Um, or are we going to bring it to the forefront? So anyway, so then you have, <clears throat> during this time, I mentioned Kenneth Ward, Robert Pearson, who were godly leaders. Um, Robert Pearson gave his famous retirement speech 
entitled Don't Let It Happen. He appealed to the leaders of the church that we are the Seventh-day Adventist church, not Seventh-day Evangelicals, and that we have a unique message. Um, Kenneth Wood retired in the early 80s. He was replaced by William Johnson. I'll talk a little bit more about William Johnson if we have time. Um, but there were other leaders as well, George Vandeman, Herbert Douglas, Thomas Davis, who were affirming that righteousness by faith meant complete victory over sin. Well, <clears throat> what is the link with questions on doctrine to the Des Ford apostasy? In 1975, Desmond Ford's wife, Jillian Ford, wrote a paper while they were still living at Avondale College, and Jillian Ford wasn't really known for being a theologian, so when she wrote this paper, um, it had Desmond Ford's fingerprints all over it because he was a theologian, a doctor of theology. Um, of course, I'm not... But anyway, here's what she said. Her paper was entitled The Soteriological Implications of the Human Nature of Christ. So that's kind of a big word, but soteriological is salvation. So the salvation implications of the human nature of Christ. And her points in this paper, there were three main points. She said that the, the idea that Jesus took a fallen human, human nature is totally wrong. So here she's in agreement with questions on doctrine. Then she says righteousness by faith is defined as justification alone, meaning that one's sanctification had nothing to do whatsoever with his salvation. And of course they mean that it's a declared righteousness only. And the last point, which is <clears throat> very important, the concept of character perfection in this earthly life was declared to be complete heresy. So now you have some fruits coming out of this questions on doctrine idea. Human nature of Christ couldn't be fallen. That's what QOD teaches. Justification by faith is the only thing that saves us, and it's the declared righteousness only. It's not a transforming experience, and that's totally wrong if you study the Bible. Um, and then the idea that we can have character perfection in this life, she's saying, and she's the wife of Desford, is complete heresy. The next thing that happened was <clears throat> in 1976, a conference was held in, in Palmdale, California, not too far from here kind of a small, out-of-the-way place to have a major conference of theologians, but that's where they had it. And Des Ford was the key, that, or was the person that things were centering around. And they discussed the issues of righteousness by faith. And the Adventist scholars came together and agreed that the only thing that saves us is legal justification, the declared righteousness of Christ outside of us apart from anything that we do. So Des Ford goes back to Australia, Victoria C. The Adventist theologians agree with me. We are saved by a declared righteousness only. And see, I'm right. And so now Desmond Ford's movement is taking steam. And Desmond Ford was a brilliant guy. He was sort of like the Bible teacher at Avondale College that all the students wanted to be in his classes because he was so interesting and charismatic and loving and would spend time and talk to you and everyone liked him. And he was really starting to create some, some waves where he was. So the general conference took a look at the situation. They said, you know, 
this Desmond Ford guy, he's a big fish in a, in a small pond. Let's, let's put him into the big pond of North America and he'll kind of shrink in size, so to speak. So they moved Desmond Ford from Avondale College to Pacific Union College and instead of becoming a little fish in a big pond, he became a huge fish in a big pond. So now the problem becomes even bigger and he starts making waves at Pacific Union College, he has direct access to North America, and things start to heat up. Well, <clears throat> in the school year of 1979 at Pacific Union College, at the very beginning of the year, the Association of Adventist Forums released their calendar for the coming year, and a meeting was scheduled for October 27, 1979, in which Desmond Ford would be the featured speaker. And here was his title. The Investigative Judgment, Theological Milestone or Historical Necessity? So that starts to create some questions in your mind as to where he's going if, before it happens. And I'm going to read the account of a student who was on campus the day that this took place. The, per the student at this time, some of you may know his name. His name's Kevin Paulson. <clears throat> so here is his account. It was a lovely autumn Sabbath. Word seemed to have get gotten around that Desmond Ford was about to make a major statement. Devotees of his theology gathered to the PUC campus from far and near. One reported to me much later that the evening before Ford had stated to her, what I say tomorrow will be heard around the world. More than a few seemed to know this. That same evening I spoke on the telephone with Dr. Herbert Douglas, then serving as senior book editor of the Pacific Press. He was certain Ford would be extremely subtle in his assertions and would need, in Douglas's words, to be, quote, smoked out of his lair. He believed it utterly out of the question that Ford would join Brin's meet in directly attacking the historic SDA sanctuary doctrine. I then told Douglas I would call him the following evening after Ford's presentation, but only if something dramatic occurred. He seemed quite sure I would not be calling him. He was in for a surprise. At 3.30 the following afternoon, two friends and I knelt for prayer in my dormitory room prior to leaving for the meeting site. Somehow we too some something serious was about to happen. As we approached Pollen Hall, where the meeting was to occur, we saw the doors open and a crowd start pouring out. Running ahead, I learned that due to overflow numbers, the meeting was being relocated to Irwin Hall, PUC's historic building, which then overlooked the lower expanse of classrooms, walkways, and the college church complex. My friends and I turned around and hurried up the long staircase, anxious, anxious to find good seats. At one point, I asked with a hint of sarcasm, what are we running for, so we can hear the investigative judgment thrown away? My neg negative premonitions were growing stronger. Ford began his discourse with his own testimony, describing doubts he had held for decades about the harmony of the Adventist Sanctuary Doctrine with the Book of Hebrews. He went on to discount the validity of the year-day principle, denied any linguistic connection between Daniel 8.14 and the depiction in Leviticus 16 of the ancient cleansing of the sanctuary, and declared that the Book of Hebrews places Christ in the most holy place, not in 1844, but immediately at his ascension. The crowd loved every word, greeting Ford's message with enthusiastic applause. At least one retired North American Division president was there, rising to his feet during the question period with a choked voice and a breaking heart. A group of us gathered in the back after the meeting, hardly believing what we had just heard. 
Upon returning to my dorm room, I called Herbert Douglas again, as I had promised to do in the event Ford's message was newsworthy. I read him my notes over the telephone. By the time I finished, his sorrow was palpable. Tapes of the meeting belted the world in days. Soon the General Conference intervened, arranging with Pacific Union College that Ford be given a six-month leave of absence, during which time he would prepare a de defense of his views, which would then be examined by a committee of persons from varied backgrounds. Ford's manuscript titled Daniel 814, The Day of Atonement and the Investigative Judgment, totaled 991 pages and was eventually published in book form. And then he goes on to say, a group of 114 scholars, pastors, and church administrators, soon to be called the Sanctuary Review Committee, met to consider Ford's case at the Glacier View Ranch near Ward, Colorado, the week of August 10 to 15, 1980. Less than a month later, following unsuccessful efforts by church leaders to urge Ford's reconsideration of his stand, the General Conference recommended to the Australasian Division that Ford's ministerial credentials be removed. This was done. The years that followed would see scores of pastors and a number of congregations exit the ministry as well as the denomination. And the controversy thus ignited continues to this day. It is an epic the church dare not forget and one whose unfinished business remains essential to the task of contemporary Adventism. Amen. You know, <clears throat> reading that account, you know, it's, it's almost hard for me to, to get through that account with being emotional because there you see Adventism nearly destroyed by one person. But it started with the fruits of questions on doctrine. And you say, well, well how did that happen? Well, first I want to read a quote from Maranatha, page 45. And she says, God will arouse his people. If other means fail, heresies will come in among them which will sift them, separating the chaff from the wheat. The Lord calls upon all who believe his word to awake out of sleep. Precious light has come appropriate for this time. So you notice what she says there, heresies will come in to sift the chaff from the wheat. And this certainly would qualify. And I'm going to read to you <clears throat> 10 key points that Desmond Ford put in his his defense of his beliefs. And um, we'll, we'll just point out a couple of, of areas. Let's we'll see how we're doing on time. We, we have some time here. So number one, these are the points Desmond Ford made. <clears throat> number one, <clears throat> the focus of the judgment and sanctuary cleansing in Daniel 7 and 8 is not the people of God, but their enemies. So he's saying, you know, the judgment in Daniel 7, the cleansing of the sanctuary in Daniel 8 is because of the enemies of God, not because of God's people. And that, um, that can be countered. I, we won't look up the verses now, but if you look up Daniel chapter 12, verse 1 and, and 2, and Revelation chapter 3, verse 5, it talks about God's people will be found written in the book. Michael stands up at the close of probation, and God's people are found written in the book, which clearly shows that God's people are a subject of the judgment. Um, so that's the first thing Desmond Ford points out. Number two, he says the year-day principle lacks clear biblical support. I mean, that's pretty pathetic. If you look at the 70 weeks, I mean, Christ came right on time according to the year-day principle. Um, if you read some of his later works, he tries to say, well, you can't prove that Christ was baptized in 27 or died in 31 and Stephen was stoned in 34. Where's the historical evidence? Well, anyway, he's, he's picking at straws. And so he's clearly trying to destroy Adventist theology. Then in his number three point, the word cleansed in Daniel 8.14 is not a correct translation. And if you actually look at the translation of it, it means 
to justify. It's from the Hebrew word nizdak. And of course, since he has a narrow view, an incomplete view of what justification means, if the word justified is synonymous with cleansing, and you think that just being justified is an outward process only, you wouldn't see a connection between being cleansed, whereas if you understand that to be justified means to be made righteous, not just to be declared righteous, then there's no problem with that translation. Um, for Mainly because when the sins of God's people are blotted out at the end of the investigative judgment, that's the final justification of God's people. Obviously, Desmond Ford didn't understand that. Now he starts to get into some weak areas. Number four, he says, Antiochus Epiphanes was the primary, if not exclusive, fulfillment of the Little Horn prophecy in Daniel 7 and 8. I mean, give me a break. I mean, you go to Daniel 8, the Little Horn gets um, bigger and waxes stronger than the powers that come before it. And Antiochus Epiphanes, which was a much smaller power than Medo-Persia and Greece. And... Anyway, that hardly bears even talking about. Yeah, it's Catholic theology. Number five, the book of Hebrews teaches that Christ entered the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary at his ascension. And Desmond Ford used the New International Version to prove this. <clears throat> if you go to Hebrews 9, Hebrews 9 in the New International Version says Christ entered into the most holy place, the entire chapter. And <clears throat> uh, my father-in-law has written a nice paper showing that <clears throat> The correct translation of the word tahagia is holy places, which means holy place and most holy place in the entire chapter of Hebrews 9. And the one translation that really mutilates the translation of that is the New International Version. But that's what Desmond Ford used to prove his point. Number six, he says the Bible teaches neither a two-apartment heavenly sanctuary nor a two-phased ministry by Jesus in heaven. <clears throat> Once again... Hebrews 9 says that the sanctuary is, that Moses made is, was a pattern after the one in heaven. How much clearer do you need to get? I mean, now you start to wonder if he's being intentionally dishonest. Number seven, the phrase within the veil in the book of Hebrews refers to the second veil or entrance into the most holy place. Once again, there's two veils. There's the veil into the holy place and the veil into the most holy place. Let's just use some common sense here. Um, number eight, he says... Seventh-day Adventists are wrong in teaching that sacrificial blood defiled the sanctuary either on earth or in heaven. And that kind of could twist some people up, but let's think about this here. The blood that defiled the sanctuary was the blood that was um, from the sacrifices of the sins of God's people. And Ellen White makes a comment about this point. Spirit of Prophecy, Volume 4, page 266. She says, As the sins of the people were anciently transferred in figure to the earthly sanctuary by the blood of the sin offering, so are sins, in fact, transferred to the heavenly sanctuary by the blood of Christ. And as the typical cleansing of the earthly was accomplished by the removal of the sins by which it had been polluted, so the actual cleansing of the heavenly is accomplished by the removal or blotting out of the sins which are there recorded. So now Ellen White's obviously countering what Desmond Ford's saying, so guess what we do next? Number nine, the writings of Ellen White have no rightful authority in settling doctrinal controversy within the church. So who are you going to go with, Desmond Ford or Ellen White? Take your pick, because he's making you choose. 
go with him and the scholars or go with Ellen White who um, received light from God? And then number 10, the sanctuary doctrine as historically taught by Seventh-day Adventists contradicts the New Testament gospel of grace. So there you have it. What's the connection between questions on doctrine and Desmond Ford? Desmond Ford says the sanctuary doctrine as historically taught by Seventh-day Adventists contradicts the New Testament gospel of grace. Well, questions on doctrine validates Desmond Ford's New Testament gospel of grace as he defines it. And it goes against the sanctuary doctrine. And you know what? Desmond Ford's absolutely right. The way he defines the gospel and the way questions on doctrine defines the gospel would... (coughs) be in contradiction to the sanctuary message. And you may say, well, what do you mean? Well, here's what Desmond Ford (coughs) said about the gospel. Desmond Ford said, we, and and this is what Questions on Doctrine introduced into Adventist theology for the first time. This is Catholic doctrine. It's called original sin. (coughs) And this concept is that when we are born... (coughs) We are born under condemnation without any choice. Adventists did not teach that before. Adventists taught that we are born with a free will to choose to serve God or not to choose Him. And because of our fallen nature, inevitably we choose to go against God. But we are not under condemnation for being born. Desmond Ford says, yes, we are under condemnation for being born. And why did QOD say, yes, we're under condemnation for being born? Because they were trying to appease Calvinists who believe in predestination, who also believe that you're under condemnation for being born. So that's the first point. Then, because we are born sinners under condemnation, the next obvious point is Christ clearly could not take the nature that we have because if he did, he would be under condemnation and need a savior as well. So if Christ lived a sinless life and sinless nature, that does not prove that human beings in this life can attain character perfection. And in fact, because we have a sinful nature that's under condemnation, we are going to be sinning till Jesus come, which is what Desmond Ford taught. And he said, we sin thousands of times a day without even thinking it. And he says, you know, Ellen White says perfect health requires perfect circulation. Therefore, when you cross your legs, you're sinning because you're cutting off your circulation. That's actual stuff that Desmond Ford would say. So he was trying to prove, look, we cannot be perfect before Jesus comes. That will only come when we receive glorified bodies. So born sinners under condemnation, Christ has a sinless nature. We can't have character perfection. And then we are justified when we are justified, that's the only thing that saves us. Christ declares us righteous and because we are sinners by nature, sinning all the time, we need Christ's righteousness to cover us because we're sinning all the time. But Christ in his mercy covers us but we keep sinning but it's the covering of his righteousness that will save us when he comes. Well, the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches that we are made new creatures in Christ when we are justified. And it goes directly contrary to what Desmond Ford says. And then he says that sanctification, or justification is 100% God's work, 0% man's. Sanctification is 50% man's work, 50% God's work, which I don't know where in the Bible it says that. First Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24, it says, God will sanctify us wholly or completely. So it's his work 100%. And Desmond Ford maybe didn't read that Bible verse. Um, So 
then when you get to all of that, then you say, well, if I'm born under condemnation and I'm not going to be perfect in this life and I can't really keep the law and it's Christ's righteousness that covers me, what's this whole point of an investigative judgment? Because the investigative judgment, which is supposed to be every man judged according to his works, well, according to this gospel, we're going to be sinning till Jesus comes. So in the investigative judgment, you look at the records, everyone's still sinning. But we're judged according to our works. Well, but everyone's still sinning. So what's the point of the investigative judgment? The investigative judgment goes against this gospel of grace that I'm teaching. So let's throw it out. It doesn't make sense. And that seed was planted back with questions on doctrine. Questions on doctrine laid the foundation for a brilliant logician theologian When I say logician, someone who's very logical, to say, let's start with the premise of this argument and take it to to its logical conclusion. And to Des Ford's credit, he did that. He takes it from its premise all the way to its conclusion, and what you get is you have Adventism destroyed. And it all started with us trying to reach common ground with Calvinist evangelicals. And the end result was a theologian like Des Ford who wipes out the foundation. And I'll say this, I doubt that Leroy Froome would have been happy to see Desmond Ford's theology come into the church. I doubt that. Um, He had written The Prophetic Faith of Our Fathers, which which defended the prophetic view of 1844 and all of that. So then for his, but for the... For them, if he had been alive, for him then to see the foundation that he laid eventually lead to the destruction of what he had fought so long for, I'm sure would have been a sorrowful thing for him. And yet, I do have some questions about Froome as well. I've talked to two different sources who say that shortly before he died, he had his son burn a lot of his papers that he didn't want church historians to get access to because who knows what he did to, to, to put QOD through. So that's unfortunate that he apparently... Um, did some things that he didn't want the light of day to see. Now, the question then is, you know, what happened? You know, Kevin Paulson mentioned briefly, and by the way, this paper that I read from is from a paper that he wrote. It's called 1844, Embattled Yet Enduring. You can find it on a website called Um, greatcontroversy.org. At the Glacier View Conference, Neil Wilson was then by this point, president of the General Conference, and <clears throat> the leaders of the church came to this meeting. My father-in-law was one of the theologians who was there, and the problem that was at this meeting was probably the majority of the theologians agreed with Desmond Ford about his doctrine of justification by faith, that we're justified only in our salvation experience and all of that. And so, but yet most of the theologians disagreed with Desmond Ford's interpretation of Daniel 8.14. Neil Wilson surveyed the scene. I talked to Dennis Preby about this. And he said, you know, this scenario is similar to the Sadducees and the Pharisees coming together to get rid of Christ. Now, I'm not saying that Desmond Ford is the Messiah by any means. He's not. But some similar principles were used here. If you remember, the Sadducees and the Pharisees had bitter disagreements on a lot of things, but they all agreed on one thing. We have to get rid of Jesus Christ because he's going to take us down. And Adventist theologians realized 
if Desmond Ford gains prominence, it's going to destroy the church. And yet, they disagreed with each other on a lot of points. So what's the one thing we agree on? Daniel 8, 14 and 18, 44, we got to save that. So they came together on that one point. Des Ford didn't back down. And they said, look, if you're going to hold on to this thing that 1844, Christ didn't go into the most holy place, we're going to get rid of you. And that's what happened. And I, you know, I am thankful that the church took its stand and removed Desmond Ford. But they didn't hit some of the other issues at stake as well, namely the salvation issues. And as a result of that, if you look at our church today, a majority of Adventists, whether they know it or not, believe in Desmond Ford's teachings on salvation. And they believe in his teachings, or they believe in the teachings that Questions on Doctrine laid down. Namely, I can't have victory over sin in this life, so the only thing that saves me is the covering of Christ's righteousness, even though I keep sinning till Jesus comes. The problem with that is, is it goes directly contrary to the third angel's message, which has a group of people who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. So, how do you, how, how do you experience the three angels' messages when the very theology that you espouse goes directly against those messages. And so you de- destroy the identity and the mission of Adventism by doing so. And what's interesting is, you know, a lot of ministers left the church because of Desmond Ford's teachings. Um, most of our colleges have been affected by that theology. Most of our young people don't even know what the three angels' messages are. My understanding is that at Avondale College, where Desmond Ford had, one, had a very prominent effect, the three angels' messages are covered in a small part of one class period in a, you know, covering theology for, for ministerial students. And most of the ministerial candidates coming out of Avondale don't even know what the three angels' messages are. And this is an Adventist college. And it would sort of be logical, though, that if you accept Desmond Ford's teachings and you throw out the investigative judgment, that you wouldn't want to spend too much time talking about the three angels' messages, which bring prominence to the investigative judgment and obedience and living by the faith of Jesus. And that's um, all lost sight of today. What's interesting also is that if you look at the editor that replaced Kenneth Ward, who was a strong defender of the faith, William Johnson... He came in and um, he, um, let me see if I can find this. He was interviewed by Walter Martin. Remember Walter Martin? He was the one who instigated the QOD book in the first place. On this television show called The John Ankerberg Show, they bring on William Johnson to talk about Adventist teachings. And so William Martin asked William Johnson some questions and he says... um, he claims that Ellen White, early in her ministry, denied the full deity of Christ. This is what Walter Martin is claiming. Now, William Johnson, to his credit, says, wait, I've never heard of this. But Walter Martin presses the issue. And so then, guess what William Johnson says? I'll give you my answer. Ellen White is not an infallible interpreter of Scripture. So now you have the editor of the Adventist Review saying, uh, Ellen White's not an infallible interpreter of Scripture. And then you go on down and they talk about the judgment and Walter Martin is saying the judgment is just for God to give us gifts it has nothing to do with our salvation and then this is what William Johnson says well I don't believe that the judgment is for our salvation not at all again our editor of the review 
and he's starting to sound a lot like Desmond Ford now. And shortly before William Johnson retired, he actually allowed, and I don't have it with me, but he allowed an article to be published that basically said, it's justification only and we don't need to worry about the judgment. And people were like, what? This sounds like Desmond Ford. And the funny thing was is the person who wrote the, the article had written a letter to Jan Paulson, president of the General Conference, saying, let's reinstate Desmond Ford because as we can see now, Adventism is really in agreement with Desmond Ford, so why did we get rid of, of him in the first place? Now, what's interesting is Desmond Ford was here at Campus Hill Church last September. He said a couple of things. I didn't go, but I watched a 10-minute video clip. He said a couple of things of interest. Number one, he said... Here was one thing that he said that I found interesting. He said, you don't have to be good to be saved, but you have to be saved to be good. Well, what does that mean? I don't know. Secondly, he said, you could tell he's bitter towards the Adventist church. He said, you know, the Pope has apologized for how they, have, they persecuted the Protestants during the Dark Ages, but the Seventh-day Adventist church doesn't apologize to me for removing my credentials. And I say, praise God, he should still be outside of the church. So... So what we see today, when the other thing Desmond Ford said was, he said the scholars all agree that to be justified is to be declared righteous only. Well, you know what? Ellen White says to be justified is to be made righteous as well as declared righteous. And I'll go with Ellen White over Desmond Ford as you close, I'd like to and any other scholar. But what I want to say in closing is that God has allowed heresies to come into this church but he is calling us to be faithful to the three angels' messages that he's given us. And when there's a group of people who will stand up for these messages, the coming of Christ will not long be delayed. So let's not be blown off by theologians who don't understand the message. Let's study for ourselves so we know what the truth is. Thank you.